So earlier this week, I had the chance to have a discussion with someone over the phone who was deeply discouraged about their job. They were discouraged because things were happening at work that were troubling them. Their company had recently gone through a big round of layoffs that were done in an inhumane way. Their bosses up at corporate seemed to have no regard whatsoever for their employees and didn't even seem to be capable of acting like a decent human being. And not only that, we're giving them schedules and projects that we're making this person along with all of the co-employees feeling overworked and underappreciated. And some of you are thinking, Pastor Stephen, I didn't talk to you this week. How did you find out about the company that I work for? Well, what was most amazing about this conversation is near the end of the discussion, we had a chance to talk about topics of Christianity. We got to talk about the church, both the good and the bad, not of this church, but just the church in general, the the highs and lows of ministry and, and of what God is doing in people's lives. And I'll never forget what this person said near the end of the conversation, that as difficult as spiritual things could be, they expressed a sense of relief. They said that they were relieved that at least they got to talk about something that actually mattered, is the way that they put it. That they were happy to talk about church because at least that that mattered. And I think that that's how most people feel. That their job is an exercise of futility. That Christians think that their life on earth is just destined to this depressing grind of meaningless work that is a necessary evil until they're able to retire or die and go to heaven. And that even though they love their church, they love their family, they're almost embarrassed by the fact that, well, they have to work. They see it as an afterthought. In fact, they've even maybe been told or or taught by churches that working in the secular field isn't really something that you should put too much emphasis on because perhaps that means you are making an idol out of it. I want to suggest to you this morning that the Bible challenges this thinking. That instead of work, whether it's at home or at an office, whether it's paid or unpaid for a Christian organization or a secular organization, I want to have you consider this morning that the Bible does not want you to just think of your work as a mere necessary evil, but to see it as one of the most important tools that God has given you in your life to serve him, and maybe it is one of the most underutilized tools in your life right now, by which you are living for the Lord. I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 3, because this morning we're going to talk about work and how we are meant to honor Christ as Lord in our working, paid or unpaid, at home or away. Our life as a worker is something that is incredibly important to God and something that he wants us to approach for his glory. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. You remember that we're in the midst of this paragraph where Paul is giving specific application points to specific people 
telling them specifically how they can fulfill Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, the climax of the letter. Where verse 17 says that whatever you do in word or deed, to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul then specifically tells wives how they can do this, and husbands how they can do this, and fathers how they can do this. And he even talks to children, telling children how they can fulfill Colossians 3.17. Yet there is one part of the household in ancient Rome that Paul has not addressed yet. And it's going to be the group of people that were part of many households in ancient Rome that Paul is going to address now in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Paul writes, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, it's very likely that most of us reading our copies of Scripture this morning see different words at the beginning of verse 22. Depending on your translation, you might see the word bondservant, like the word I just read, or you might just read the word servant, or if you're reading from the NASB or even the NIV, you're reading the word as it actually appears in the original Greek, the accurate word, which is the word slave. Paul is addressing slaves here in these verses. And you may be wondering, well, why doesn't our translation, if it's so obviously the word slave, it's not the word for servant. The word deacon is actually the word for servant in the Greek New Testament. This is the word for slave. You might think if it's so obvious, why don't all of our Bibles just use the word slave? Well, the reason is for the reasons that you could guess. That in our modern Western world, as we look back at American history, history in Western Europe, slavery in our context refers to a very, very evil thing that took place against Africans and in the United States against African Americans who were abused, who were subjected, who were captured for the sake of being enslaved in a harsh and abusive way based solely on the color of their skin and the belief that because of the color of their skin, they were not deemed human. That was evil and wrong and sinful and completely antithetical to what God's word says. So because of that, the idea of Paul referring to slaves or the Bible talking about slaves and what slaves should do rightly made people uncomfortable because of recent history. Yet even though in our context we have seen slavery in its most evil forms, and there are instances of slavery even today, like through sex trafficking and other instances that are incredibly evil and wrong and unbiblical, even though that is the case, in these verses, the Bible is going to at least acknowledge slavery, even if they don't endorse slavery. They're going to acknowledge it, And even that word slave is going to be a word that even Paul himself uses positively to refer to how Christians should see themselves. 
Meaning that the way we serve Christ as Christians is in some way similar to how God in this context in ancient Rome wanted slaves to serve their earthly masters. For example, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul calls himself a slave of Christ. Not a servant, not a deacon of Christ, a slave of Christ. We find the same thing in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul says, I'm a slave of Christ. Later on in Colossians chapter 4, Epaphras, who started the church in Colossae, is going to be referred to as our fellow slave. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul asks, am I here to please man or am I here to please God? If he's seeking to please men, that would mean that he is not a slave, he says in verse 10, of Christ. We're so often comfortable with the idea of Christianity being described in terms of freedom. We're free from this, we're free from that, we have freedom in Christ. And that's true, there's a couple instances in Scripture where it does describe Christianity as one of freedom. Romans 8 verse 2 talks about uh, the, life, the, the spirit of life giving us freedom in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter um, 13 verse 17 talks about how where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But more often than the word freedom, the New Testament, the majority of the time, refers to the Christian life, not one of freedom, but one of slavery to Christ. In fact, in the few instances where freedom is mentioned in the New Testament, it's explicitly described as, you are now free from your sin in order that you may be a slave to righteousness, is what it says in Romans chapter 6. So all of this suggests that what we're going to find in these next few verses in Colossians is not, again, an endorsement of slavery, but an acknowledgement of the existence of slavery in the New Testament time and God's plan for how slaves are to work during that time and how, how they work as slaves is meant, in a sense, to be parallel to how Christians can be slaves of the Lord. And just to further emphasize the point, to understand slavery in the time of Colossae in the New Testament, let's describe a few differences between how slavery existed back then compared to how we've seen it exist, unfortunately, in American history. For example, you could voluntarily enter into slavery as an economic strategy. If you were in debt, becoming a slave was a way that you could pay off your debt. If you were impoverished, and you had instability in your life, people would voluntarily become a slave in order to gain stability and safety and, protect, and protection for themselves and for their family. Being a slave also functioned as a form of indentured servitude. You could learn a skill as a slave, and often people would voluntarily become slaves for the sake of learning a skill under someone's household. Not only that, but these workers often were also paid. Almost like what we saw from the CCC camps in the 1930s in American history where young men would go out and they would build bridges and roads and national parks and they would send the majority of their money to their family and keep a small percent. That was a similar system to what the slaves experienced, which they used eventually. They would then save and use to buy their own freedom. For this reason, the majority of the slaves in ancient times were under the age of 30. It was more of a function of the Roman economy than a product of 
racism or a product of sinful subjugation. It was more voluntary than it was compulsory. But there were two things that made someone a slave in ancient times. When Paul is referring to slaves in Colossians chapter 3 and to workers, a slave had these two things that were true about him or her. Number one, a slave's freedom was completely limited to the will of his or her master, meaning that they could only go where the master wanted them to go. They could only do what the master wanted them to do. They had a limited sense of freedom. They were not literally in chains going back and forth, but they were only allowed to freely go where the will of their master allowed for them to go. That would be the first aspect of an ancient slave in the Roman Empire. And the second, and perhaps the most important aspect of a Roman slave, was that a slave, like these ones here in Colossae, their identity was completely found in their master. Their name, their ethnicity, their culture, all of that was put to the side, and now their new identity was found in who their master was. Therefore, if we are slaves of Christ, we must understand ourselves in the same way, that our freedom is found only in the will of God where God wants us to go, and that our identity is not found in ourselves but found in Christ. This will be important to properly understand the verses that are happening in Colossians chapter 3. It's a long kind of contextual introduction, but it's important to understand why Paul is saying what he's saying to slaves. This is not an endorsement of all slavery, But it is saying that those who are slaves, who are living under a household in the Roman Empire like in Colossae, now that they are Christian, if they are saved, their job is not to reject their work or to dismiss their work, but instead to embrace their work with a new perspective. Let's read the rest of the passage before looking at the big idea. I'll reread verse 22, and we're going to go down all the way to Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Bond servants, Paul says, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, first verse of chapter 4, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Your big idea for this morning is this. That Christians are called to serve others on earth in obedience to your master in heaven. The word for master and Lord in this passage is the same exact word. Kurios. It's the word for Lord. It's used both in reference to earthly masters and to Jesus Christ who is our heavenly master. In fact, that's even why, in verse 22, Paul specifically says, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Your translation of the Bible could have just used the word Lord in every instance, or it could have just used the word master in every instance. 
I went to a seminary called the Master Seminary because one of the key tenets of that school was the belief that Christ is more than just Savior. He is Lord or Master over all and should be followed in all areas of life. And that would even include in our work. So let's break down these four verses and look at four key points that teach us how we can honor God with our work by serving our earthly masters in obedience to our master in heaven. Your first point is this, is that slaves should obey their masters as a result of fearing the Lord. That the reason why they obey their masters in everything, just as Paul commanded children to obey their parents in everything, Workers are called to obey their bosses and their masters, not because their masters are powerful or good or worth obeying, but most of all because Christ is good and powerful and worth obeying. Look at what verse 22 says again. For the first point, it says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. That word, not by way of eye service, is interesting because the word that is used is kind of two words put together. Paul is literally saying, do not be a slave to the eyes of your master. Don't be a slave just to the eyes of your master. Be a slave to your master in everything. Because, almost kind of like a minimum wage perspective, when you were a slave, you lost motivation. There was no capitalism. You lost motivation to work hard because you weren't really being benefited by any of it. Therefore, slaves had a reputation for being extremely lazy and doing the bare minimum and always having to be told again and again to do their work. And they learned that they didn't really need to be a slave to their master. They only needed to be a slave to the eyes of their master. When the master was watching, then you work. If the master is not watching, well, you don't have to work. Paul is telling the slaves who are followers of Jesus Christ that the Lord has eyes too. And that the Lord is always watching. And that the way that they serve in their work should not just be for the eyes of their earthly master, in fear of what their master will do if he sees them not working, but a kind of work that is in healthy fear of the Lord, recognizing that he is always watching, therefore we should work in order to please him. That's what Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 says, talking about serving the Lord with fear and trembling, and in the same way obeying our earthly masters. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 says that we should be subject in all respects, uh, in all ways to our masters, not only to the good and gentle bosses, but also to the unjust. That's hard to do. It's tempting for us when we have a bad boss to not respond with good work. But Paul is telling slaves in Colossae that they now have a new boss, and his name is Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation, and that he loved them and died for him. Therefore, serve at your workplace to him as the master who is always watching. Titus chapter 2, verse 9 emphasizes this point. Not being argumentative, but being submissive and well-pleasing. 
Is this the way that you approach your work, either at home, on a volunteer basis, at a company? Do you work in such a way that indicates to others that you are serving a heavenly master, not just an earthly master? You should obey your bosses in everything within the confines of what is right in Scripture, not just because you fear them, but because you fear the Lord and honor him as your master. Let's look at point two. The second point is going to come from verse 23. That whatever you do, to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. The second point, which is just a summary of this verse, which is that slaves should work as worship to the Lord. Your work that you do, moms, dads, husbands, fathers, students, interns, fast food employees, minimum wage workers, the work that you do is an instrument of worship to the Lord. How are you using it to worship Jesus Christ? In verse 23, where it says that whatever you do to work heartily, what's literally being said is to work with all of your soul, to work with all that is within you, to have it come from, from, from the deepest place inside yourself, when you're rooting for a team with all your heart, soul, and mind, when you're excited and you jump up for joy, when you get good news with all your heart, soul, and mind, when you're truly excited and passionate about something, so you put all of your soul into it, God says, this is how you should work at your workplace for me. Not for their benefit, but for worship unto me. This language of using your soul to proclaim and do things for God is repeating what we see in the Old Testament. Famously in Psalm 103, verse 2, we see the famous words, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Every time I read that verse, I just want to sing it, right? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Yeah, it's 10,000 reasons. We sing that here at church. And forget not all his benefits. Worship is meant to come from the soul. In the same way, the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, you, you hear me quote this passage often. It's a pillar text in Scripture. It's the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. It's that same language that's being used to describe how slaves are supposed to work. Jesus repeats this in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, as the greatest commandment. God wants what we do for him as worship to be something that is not just legalistic, not just something that comes from our hands and feet, but something that comes from the heart itself. That's the way that you should approach your work, as unspiritual as it may seem, as a domestic and pedestrian and unimportant as your job may appear. It is for the Lord. Because guess what? Christ is Lord over everything, including the company that you work at. Christ is Lord of the co-op where you serve. He's Lord over your home. Therefore, you should serve with that in mind. We proclaim Christ as Lord over all when we serve him in everything. When we do everything for the benefit and glory of God, we are indicating to people that God is Lord even over this. It's a way that we proclaim his mastership over everything, is by working in everything for him and to worship and to proclaim him. We see this repeated in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, where it says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, 
longer passage, but I'll just read the end, that in everything, Christ may be glorified. Jesus Christ wants to be glorified in everything. Are you making God look good as a result of your work? It's amazing how non-Christians will really put Christians to shame at the workplace. Mormons, Roman Catholics, even well-natured atheists who just want to be nice to people, they will serve in ways that sometimes are frankly even better than the ways that Christians work and serve at their workplaces. And they have no reason to do so other than to puff up themselves. We have every reason to serve at our workplaces with all of our heart, soul, and mind because we see our work as belonging to God. Therefore, use your work as a form of worship to him. Let's look at the third point, moving right through the passage. I'll give you the point and then read the verse. The third point is that slaves should work by faith in the Lord's future justice. We see this, well actually let me say this first as you're writing it down. Slaves should work by faith in the Lord's future justice. Sometimes it's easy to have a message like this and for it to be very theoretical. To say, well this is all well and good, Pastor Stephen, but you don't know what it is like at my workplace. You don't know what my bosses are like. You don't know what the conditions are like. You don't know the kind of conditions and situations that, you put, that they put me under, how unfair it is, how sinful it is. And I want to recognize that. I want to acknowledge that. We should recognize that because we are living in the world and because we need to provide for our families and serve our families, we are often, almost always, going to be forced to work with people who treat us and those around us sinfully. The sinfulness of your boss in your workplace is not excusing the commands that God is giving to slaves in this passage. Because look at the explanation that he gives. And I have to say just really quickly, Paul has very quickly addressed women and men and children, saying very directly, do this, do this, do this. This is the only instance in this paragraph when talking to slaves that Paul feels the need to explain himself further. And we can't know explicitly why that is the case, but there has to be some kind of suggestion that there is an awareness, as we have from history, that there were many evils still happening in slavery in the ancient world. That without this being a full endorsement of slavery itself, it's instructions to slaves, even in the midst of evil that they may be experiencing, how they can still honor God through it. That's just something worth noticing. Because the third point is the result of what we see in verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive, he's talking to slaves, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And going on to verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. You can work in full worship from the soul, not just for your boss, but for your Lord as master of your life, because you can rest by faith in the promise that God is also a righteous judge, and God is boss over your bosses, and that they will answer in one way or another, for what they have done, maybe even to you at your workplace. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14, talks about how every deed will be called into account. Romans chapter 2, uh, two verse 16, um, talks about how that on that day, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men. That's Romans 2, 
verse 16. I gave the wrong reference for that. My apologies. And then moving on for the sake of time, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12 and 13, at the judgment of Christ, those who are saved, their names will be written in the book of life, but there are other books that God will be opening up on that day. And if your name is not in the book of life, the other books will be opened up and a recording and a judgment and a revealing of all the things that sinful people have done will be held into account and they will be judged for it. Even 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 talks about how even Christians who have been given the foundation of Christ, even they, when they go to heaven, they will be tested and evaluated based on what they built upon that foundation with the worship of their life, whether they use their salvation to glorify God or to glorify themselves. It even goes so far in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 to 15 to say that those people, they will be saved and go to heaven, but only as those escaping through the flames. There's an accountability for injustice, including the injustice that happens at your work. Therefore, know and remember that you can still work for the worship and honor of God, even if your bosses are unjust, because God is their boss too. And that even though we are called slaves of Christ, Romans makes this very clear, we're not just slaves of Christ. We are adopted sons of the King. We don't just have work to do, we have an inheritance to look forward to. That inheritance is heaven, that inheritance is the kingdom of God, and that inheritance is even God himself. We are not just slaves with a hopeless life in front of us, we are slaves of Christ who are also sons of God who will receive an inheritance, as this passage says. So for that reason, the fourth point is now talking to masters, to earthly lords. You might be a manager, you might be a supervisor, you might be a CEO or a team leader. You might be the head of kids or a co-op or a team, and you may have people under you. Just as God talked to husbands about how they should help their wives submit to Christ, and God talked to fathers about how they should help their children submit to Christ, God is now talking to earthly masters, which could have been both men and women in this context, and how they can treat their slaves, their servants, in such a way that equips them to honor Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That even if your work is leading and overseeing other people and being master over other people, you must remember that you too are also a slave of Christ. That just like that one servant who was forgiven much by the king and then he went to another co-employee who owed him just a little bit and wouldn't forgive him. Don't be that kind of servant. Don't be that kind of boss who forgets that you also are a slave of Christ. Treat them justly and with humility. So all of this points us to recognize that our work is a form of worship. And that we are called as Christians not to see our work or our employment as something not part of our Christian life, but a crucial tool of our Christian life to praise the one and true Master, capital M, the one and true Lord, capital L. That we should serve our masters on earth in obedience to our Master in heaven. 
And notice as we close that Paul never said that slaves should do this because, well, your boss might be so impressed with you that he becomes saved. Or that your, co- that your co-workers are so impressed by your hard work that they want to come to church and see what you have. There's no promise of that given. That could happen. That may happen. But that's not the ulterior motive that Paul gives. The only motive that Paul gives is that you should work with all your heart, soul, and mind because all work belongs to God. He's king over everything. He's Lord over all. He's the boss of all bosses. Therefore, if you believe that, Serve and work as if it is true. Pray with me.